Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Last week, we read the Apostle Paul's guidance to Timothy concerning the recurring problem of false teaching within the church. Timothy's opponents were distracting, discouraging, and dividing believers with their bad ideas, poor interpretations, and strange philosophies. It was confusing, misguided, and unhealthy, so much so that Paul sums up the content of this false teaching as quarrels about words. So Paul advises Timothy to avoid these false teachers when possible. Just cut off the oxygen from the fire. And when the damage does become too great and the disease spreads too far, and Timothy has no choice but to intervene, he's to do so carefully, thoughtfully, and wisely, in hopes that God might draw his opponents, along with those they've misled, to repentance. But above all else, Paul instructs Timothy to focus on his own godly living, his own sound teaching. He said in verse 15, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Regardless of what the false teachers were doing, Timothy must strive to live and speak as an honorable vessel in God's house, as far as he can control it, striving to be holy, useful, and ready for every good work. And Paul's guidance to Timothy back then is relevant to Christians like us and churches like ours today. And that's because false teaching is still a real problem. We too can find ourselves distracted, discouraged, and divided over quarrels about words, which do no good but only ruin the hearers. If we are not on guard against false teaching here, we too can be led into ungodliness and swerve away from the truth. Thus, we would be wise to heed the same advice that Paul gave Timothy. To avoid false teaching when possible, be wise about when and how we engage it, and above all else, focus on our own godly living our own sound words before we worry about others. And through it all, including those moments when we feel beaten down, when we feel like we're alone, when we feel like the false teaching is winning, we can be confident that at the end of the day, God will sort it out. As Paul says, the Lord knows those who are his. Now, Paul continues on this same theme today. And as we said several times in the sermon series, if it's important enough for Paul to say it more than once, it's important enough for us to hear it more than once. The truth is that the problems Paul addresses will never truly go away this side of heaven, no matter how well we handle them. There will still be false teachers misleading God's people. There will still be brothers and sisters falling into their traps. 
Until Jesus returns, we live in a fallen world full of fallen people. So even though our world has improved in countless ways since Paul wrote, for example, I don't know about you, but I think running water and electricity and antibiotics are all very good. Still, though, we shouldn't be surprised when our world looks ugly. So the question then becomes, how should Timothy and how should we live faithfully to Christ in these less than ideal circumstances? How can we follow our Lord in a fallen world until he returns? So open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to follow along as we go, but before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to read your word. Thank you for the privilege of reading your word. As we'll talk about here in just a few minutes, remind us that your word is not just another book. It's certainly not just a paperweight. Uh, it's certainly not just an accessory that we carry around on Sundays, but your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be attentive to your word this morning. Thank you for the privilege of preaching. Thank you for these brothers and sisters, new faces and old faces. Uh, more than anything, I pray that our time together is honoring to you today. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by reading 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 1. Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than the lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. <sighs> Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Verse 7 is a very biblical way of saying so open-minded that your brain falls out. Verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres, those were the two Egyptian magicians, try to say that five times fast, Egyptian magicians, the Egyptian, magip- eh. the Egyptian magicians, who gave Moses, gave the Israelites a hard time way back in the book of Exodus. When he threw down a staff and made it a snake, they threw down a staff and made it a snake. They did all kinds of things like that. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. So what do you think Paul means when he says, the last days? Way back in verse 1. The last days. Is Paul picturing some barren, 
post-apocalyptic hellscape like you see in the disaster movies? Is he giving Timothy a puzzle that he must unlock to try and figure out when these last days will arrive? Is Paul imagining a left-behind style tribulation or rapture? What does he mean by last days? Well, biblically speaking, the last days are the time between Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, all of which have already happened, and Jesus' return, which hasn't happened yet. So if you think about it, by that definition, the last days are not some far-off period of time. We're living in them now. We've been living in them for almost 2,000 years. Any time between now and Jesus' return can be considered the last days. We Christians believe that Jesus could return at any moment. Now, Paul goes on to say that these last days will be difficult. And that may be putting it lightly. The word difficult can also be translated as violent terrible or fierce. Now, what makes these last days so difficult? Well, like we said a moment ago, our fallen world is full of fallen people. And fallen people in a fallen world do fallen things. We sin, and sin is bad. However, as if that isn't bad enough... We've got the false teachers to deal with, too. And they are a dangerous threat. They're described in verses 2 through 5 as lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. In short, they're lovers of everything but God, who ironically is the one person actually worthy of our eternal love. These false teachers may look godly on the outside, They may sound godly when they speak, but deep down, they are godless. And even worse, they drag others down with them. You see that in verses 6 and 7. They prey on the spiritually vulnerable. Those weighed down by the baggage of old sins from the past. Those who are immature in their faith. Those who are lacking discernment. In short, these false teachers who claim to worship the one true God are no better than the pagans who don't even attempt to worship the one true God. They're not brothers and sisters in Christ who are sincerely mistaken or naively misguided. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And if you think Paul's description of the false teachers in verses 2 through 7 is bad, look again at verse 8. There is no more damning description that Paul could give than those words. Opposed to the truth, corrupted in mind, and disqualified regarding the faith. These last days in which we live, until Christ returns, they will be difficult for followers of Jesus. And false teachers are a big reason why. 
But amidst all the pessimism of verses 1 through 8, there's a glimmer of hope in verse 9. Look back at verse 9. Paul writes, The false teachers will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. False teachers lose in the end. Just like Janus and Jambres and Pharaoh lost back in the book of Exodus. Those people made life hard on Moses and the Israelites for a little while. But guess what? God ultimately delivered them. And the same is true for us. Even in a world that opposes it, the truth of the gospel wins out. Remember what Paul said a couple of Sundays ago? The word of God is not bound. The lies of the false teachers will be exposed. Their folly will be made plain to all. And even if God's people don't see that victory in this life, we will see it in eternity. That is a glimmer of hope in a very dark passage. You know, it's common to hear Christians, and let's be honest, especially older Christians, say something like this. I'm convinced that we are living in the last days. And it's tempting to respond with, come on, you're just behind the times. You're scared of change and maybe a bit cranky. It's not really that bad. On top of that, hasn't basically every generation said the same thing? We're all tempted to assume that the time we live in is worse than any other, hands down. But here's the thing. In a way, those Christians convinced that we're living in the last days, they're absolutely right. In a very real sense, the world is in just as bad of shape as Paul said it would be, if not worse. Just think if Paul saw social media. And while it's true that the world isn't as bad as it theoretically could be, the problems of sin and death and Satan will not truly go away until Jesus returns as king and judge. We shouldn't be surprised if these last days are a time of great difficulty for God's people. But then that raises another question. What do we do in the meantime? How should we Christians spend our time as we wait for the end of these last days? The return of Christ. Do we spend all of our time doing something negative? Mourning and brooding and denouncing and shaking our fist at the state of the world? Or can we do something more positive? If believers in Jesus are called to not be like the people in verses 1 through 8, who are we called to be? If we're called not to do what the people in verses 1 through 8 do, then what do we do instead? 
Turn back to verse 10. Paul continues. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Back in chapter 1, Paul mentioned that Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him the faith at a young age. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. First, in these last days, as we wait for Christ's return, Christians are called to be willing to suffer for the gospel. Paul has drilled this into our heads throughout this letter, hasn't he? He told Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God back in chapter 1. He repeated it in chapter 2. And here he says it again in chapter 3. And it's noteworthy that Paul doesn't just give Timothy orders. He gives Timothy an example to follow. Paul is in prison as he writes. He was thrown out of town in Antioch. He barely escaped stoning in Iconium, so his opponents followed him to Lystra and stoned him there. You can read about that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Paul knows what it's like to suffer for the gospel. He has the memories. He can show you the scars. And he calls Timothy. And he calls us. To suffer for the gospel with him. In these last days. Now before we move ahead. Quick question. Do you really believe that? I mean be honest. Do you actually believe that God might call you to suffer for the gospel? Do you really buy the words of verse 12? That all who strive to live a godly life will be persecuted? I ask because few, if any of us, have experienced real persecution for our faith. As a result, we may be tempted to think that it couldn't possibly happen to us. But don't assume that just because you haven't suffered for the gospel in the past, God would never call you to suffer for the gospel in the future. Don't get lulled into a false sense of security. Don't be unprepared if that time comes. We may be the exception that proves the rule of verse 12. But we may not be the exception 
forever. So as we wait for Christ's return, we're called to be willing to suffer for the gospel. On top of that, in these last days, Christians are called to continue in the faith. Continue is an important word there. We don't reinvent our faith. We don't innovate doctrine. We don't change, update, or remodel the gospel passed down to us. We continue in it. We remain in it. We defend it. We keep doing what we're doing. Now, we may learn and grow in our understanding of the gospel. We may try new strategies or tactics to make our faith more attractive, more compelling, more convincing to a changing world that desperately needs it just as much as ever. But the core, bedrock truths of the gospel do not change. They won't change. They can't change. Beware the teacher who insists that they have some new, brilliant, revolutionary idea about the faith that every other believer got wrong for 2,000 plus years before they came along. We continue in what we have learned and believed from the godly people who came before us. We continue in our faith, and we're willing to suffer for it. And then finally, last but certainly not least, and speaking of things that don't change, in these last days before Christ's return, we Christians rely heavily on God's word. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 is arguably the strongest statement in the Bible about itself. You see, unlike the false teacher's wild ideas, Scripture came from God himself. The Bible is God-breathed. That is something that no other book, no other document, no other testimony in all of creation can claim. In the words of one theologian, God's word is sprung from heaven. Sprung from heaven. Peter puts it this way. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 20. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This book came from God. And as a Christian, this book is the most precious item you own. It is your most prized possession. It is a gift of God's grace because it came from God himself. So trust it. Lean on it. Depend on it in these last days. But we don't just rely heavily on God's word because it's inspired by God. God breathed. We rely on it because it's useful. This book is our primary means of knowing the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, and the truth about our world. 
It's how we know what sin is and who redeemed us from it. It's how we encourage each other, challenge each other, and hold each other accountable to our calling as God's people. It's how we learn to live righteously, having been declared righteous by faith in Jesus. Without this, without God's word, we are incomplete and ill-equipped for the good works that God has saved us for. John Calvin once described humanity without scripture as wandering up and down in a labyrinth in search of some doubtful deity. Without this, trying to follow Jesus is like getting lost in a corn maze. God's word is inspired and God's word is useful. And without it, we will have no idea where we are going, or what we are doing, or why we are doing it in these difficult last days. Again, we've all thought it at some point. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Well, in some ways, yeah. These last days are times of difficulty. Things really are bad. False teachers cause problems. People are led astray. Our only true and permanent hope is Jesus' return, and we don't know when that will be. But we have work to do as we wait. We have a mission to accomplish by God's grace and by God's power. We are called to suffer for the gospel. We are called to continue in the faith that's been passed down to us. And we do this not by our own strength, not in our own wisdom, but by relying heavily on God's word. Reading one more time from the book of Second Peter. Peter says, chapter 3, verse 8, addressing people who are starting to wonder, well, where is Jesus? It's been a while. He said he was going to come back and he's not here yet and... That was 2,000 years ago. So you can understand why people might be asking the same question now. Peter says this. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Well, what do we do till then? Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. These really are the last days. But 
the world really is fallen. Sin really is tempting. False teachers really are dangerous. The devil himself really is prowling. And in this fallen world, in these last days, faithfulness to Christ is hard. It can be exhausting. It may even be costly. But we win in the end. Jesus loves us, this we know, for the Bible tells us so. This Bible is inspired by God and useful to us as we follow Jesus. And while these last days are times of difficulty, we know they won't last forever. And the eternity in God's presence we look forward to will be more than worth the wait. So may we be willing to suffer for our Lord. Continue in the faith he passed down to us. And rely on his word until these difficult last days are done. Until he returns. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. This passage is many things at once. The first half of it is certainly sobering to acknowledge that, yeah, we really do still live in a fallen world. There is still sin out there. There is still sin in us that you are working to put to death. And things really can be bad. Things really are bad sometimes for followers of Jesus. But that shouldn't surprise us. And it shouldn't intimidate us too much. Because we know who wins in the end. We know that we win in the end because you win in the end. Because Christ won in the end, even after he was crucified. So, Lord, in these difficult last days, in this fallen world, help us live faithfully to you. Help us be willing to suffer for the gospel. Help us continue in the faith. And, Lord, remind us of how desperately we need your word to accomplish anything you've given to us. Help us not fall into the trap of thinking that we can do without it, that we can do without you. Strengthen us, Lord. Give us courage. Give us wisdom. Give us guidance. Give us care. Give us knowledge. As we follow you, as we know you, as we worship you, as we obey you. Even when times are hard, Lord, in this life, remind us of the life that lies ahead of us. We love you. We glorify you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.